Hey everyone, it's Brie here, and I wanted to address a few things. No, this is not another warning about my audio quality. Uh, this is a few fairly exciting items. The first is to answer the obvious question, which is why am I doing this episode a week early? Is Peak Show moving to a weekly format? Well, no, not for a while, although I continue to be very touched by the positive reception to the podcast. I'm going to keep it bi-weekly for now. However, I did want to fast track this episode for a couple reasons. Number one is that tomorrow is my birthday. That's right, I am going to be 32 years old, the perfect age to be pouring all my heart and soul into a podcast that nine people listen to. Uh, and with tomorrow being my birthday, because in this episode, Luke and I discuss a few great mutual aid and community-focused organizations, I thought it would be a great chance to say, if you want to wish me a happy birthday in a very special way, you too can support some of these organizations. Uh, if you're in a place with a community fridge, maybe uh, tag at Peak Show Pod on Twitter or tag me on Instagram at Breganism with a post about your donation. Uh, there are some great tenants, legal defense funds organization, great uh, support for the incarcerated. Um, I should let you know that one of the initiatives that I mentioned in this episode, the downtown Hamilton period pantry, has since been vandalized, I believe, to a point beyond repair. Uh, but they did get a good month or so in, so good for them. I hope they try again. But if there was one organization that I could say is uh, most imperative to my heart, I would say donate to the Legal Defense Fund for 1492 Land Back Lane. I've linked to a GoFundMe in the description. Uh, they've been going on since 2020 with this initiative, and they are still not at their goal. But I think it's really important to support land defenders at a time when our government is being very hostile toward them. So the second, uh, this is another link in the description thing, so absolutely check the description of this episode. I made a great playlist to go with this episode. Uh, Luke and I talked about a lot of great bands, a lot of great subgenres, moments, and movements within Canadian rock, Indian hip-hop, and so we wanted to give you something to relive the magic, or if you're American or just never went through these musical phases, uh, to discover it on your own. I have links for both a Spotify version and an Apple Music version. They are the exact same on both platforms. So if you got several hours of great music from great artists, and we probably didn't dwell on some of these artists as much as we should have. And a, a subnote with this, you might notice that we refer to the indigenous EDM duo of the hallucination as a tribe called Red. They did in fact change their names very, very recently. And our excuse is that we recorded this a while ago, I think either right before or right after uh, they changed the name, but we did not know yet. Uh, so the link is in the description. We've got a lot of music in there that we think you'll love. We love it. Uh, on a final note, um, all nine of you <laughs> must be wondering what is happening next week. Am I going to have to wait three weeks for a new Peak Show episode? No, heck no. A new episode is going to come out when it's due, which is July 1st. You'll have something to listen to instead of celebrating settler colonialism. Uh, so another reason I adjusted the timing of this episode is because if I were to adjust Peak Show by just one week, move everything up just one week, we get three episodes in July. And July is going to be such a special month because we have three super episodes on The Simpsons. So we've got some great podcasters and journalists come to the show to discuss the peak of The Simpsons, which could never really be contained within one show. It's a bit of a risk creatively because I know people might get bored, but um, if there's a positive reception to it, if all nine of you like it, um, it might set the tone for something I do once a year, like say an all Beatles month or an all Star Wars month. So save an extra long month just for those things that are too big for one episode. Anyway, I've rambled long enough. Please remember to check the links in the description for some great music, great activism. Give us five stars on iTunes or go to hell. <laughs> Don't go to hell. Keep taking it easy. Thank you. We feel good that we've earned success now because I remember 
sleeping in the van outside of that squat in San Antonio. And I remember like playing in Victoria, Texas and with those Mexican skinheads. And like, I remember all asking those... us to play screwdriver songs. Who's like this racist punk band, but they were Mexican skinheads. It was yeah. very confusing. <laughs> yeah. because we're moving up. I'm your host, Bree Rohde, and I set out to explore when the media and creators you love peaked. And here with me today is producer, audio engineer, developer, deep thinker, and sometimes musician, Luke Levy. Hey, Luke, how you doing? Hello. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really exciting to uh, get you involved in this project. Oh, it's good to be here. Good to be here talking about this. <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited. And we're going to get to kind of your bio, who you are, your qualifications in a second. But first, I want to start out with the question I ask every guest host, which is, when did you peak? When did I peak? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I honestly, I hope I haven't peaked. I want to peak in the future, is, mm-hmm. is what I'm going to say. It's, it's, yeah. I, 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 I feel like, I don't know, in a weird way, I'm peaking right now in a lot of ways. Um, even though the world certainly isn't peaking right now, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> but no. Uh, for myself personally, right, right now is uh, it's going pretty good, going pretty good overall. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, I was gonna say that about uh, half of the yes hosts I've had so far have said, "Oh, I'm peaking right now," and yet I'm like. I feel like it's justified with you. Like, you know, you're you're doing great career-wise. You've accomplished so much. You know, your personal life, It's uh, it's everything's coming up Luke right now. So I got to agree. You are, you know, if you're not peaking yet, the best is yet to come. So uh, this episode is a bit different from previous episodes because previously we've pretty much done exclusively TV and movie series. Um, and the plan always has been to get to things like musicians, creators, directors, even sports and sports teams. Mm. But I thought this would be extremely fun to discuss a genre and the concept of a genre. And mm. this is so much more than the genre. This is very much a music and a scene within Canadian music. So our goal today is to define the era that was when it ended and when it peaked. We're talking about Canadian indie rock pot music yeah and that's why yeah that's why today i have the amazing luke with me so besides being a good dear friend of mine i mean we've known each other since the fifth and sixth grade i think yeah uh but yeah (laughs) going way back i don't think we've changed that much to be honest um but besides being uh being an amazing person luke is an audio engineer and producer as well as film and video producer more than a decade of experience in the Canadian music industry. So I would talk about more and discuss some of the artists that you've worked with, but I'd actually love to leave that up to you. Uh, brag about yourself, some of your achievements, and just what some of your highlights are in the music industry. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't actually describe myself as a producer very much. It's I, I produced a little yeah. bit in my early career, but I've definitely grown in. I'm much more an engineer, uh, I think, like, and my, my career focus has been as an engineer. Uh, but I, I worked full time uh, for four years at Noble Street Studios in Toronto, um, which is a premier grade uh, major label grade studio, uh, and worked on a couple, couple of pretty good projects in my time there, and uh, uh, built up a decent repertoire of just kind of engineering and assisting. Uh, did a lot of also like just the very technical aspects. You know, I, I wired up parts of that studio, and um, uh, f- from there I became 
a web developer and software engineer, and I'm actually working for a music company now involved with uh, collecting royalties and kind of a, a streamlining payouts from artists from uh, what's called uh, PROs, uh, Performing Rights Organizations. Really cool. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think to me, and one of the things I had initially written down in my notes was, um, you know, both of us are from a small town, very northern Ontario, uh, didn't grow up in Toronto, but we've been in Toronto for essentially um, me a decade, you a little more than a decade. Yeah. And I guess I didn't realize as a kid growing up in Timmins, Ontario, that in Toronto, you could literally just be walking down the street and see um, see someone, even my brief foray into music journalism uh, and occasionally interview, like I never interviewed that anyone that big. I interviewed the Arkells uh, about three times, yeah, nice. which ev every student journalist interviewed the Arkells back when they were just like doing the college circuit. Um, but I, I, I can't think of any more of a Toronto moment than when you and I, I think it was, we were in Fresh on Queen and Kevin Hearn from the Bare Naked Ladies walked in and you're just like, oh, hey, Kevin. And it's like, oh, he just knows musicians <laughs> i just yeah i i spent i spent a couple months locked in a, a windowless room with kevin hearn mm. working on music yeah. and uh yeah he's a, he's a good dude he's a he's actually he is super down to earth yeah they, they all seem like are. amazing guys yeah. yeah so i i think it's important to talk about why we're discussing this which is i mean there's the obvious one right now, which is in the era of COVID, a lot of really important concert venues have either closed permanently or have had a difficult time staying open. Um, yeah. A countless number closed this year, but the three biggest to me that I think the names everyone knows are Mod Club, Hughes Room, and Orbit Room. Although I recently heard Mod Club yeah. is reopening under new ownership. Uh, I haven't it, actually it, heard that, uh, but that would be good because I, I knew people that I knew know people that worked at Mod Club. And yeah. they, that, that, they had the rug pulled out from under them. They didn't, really didn't get a whole lot of notice that was coming up. Like, they had been mm -hmm. closed for a while, obviously, but it just, yeah, that, that's, yeah. that's a brutal one because it's so central. It's so key. So many, like, amazing concerts have happened there. One of the many Arkell shows that I've been to. <laughs> uh, and also, like I said, my brief foray into music journalism, pretty much every gig that I got sent to cover when I was an intern was was at Mod Club. And you're right. It's an amazing location. It's an amazing venue. And I think, you know, this I was saying off mic when I was making these notes, this very much became a story about media consolidation. And I think when... Um, you know, when a venue gets bought or has an investment from a big company from the likes of something like Virgin, um, you, you often think like, this is a, this is great. This is resources for them. But what it really can often be is when uh, times get tough and they're taking a loss, this is going to be one of the first things that, that they get rid of. So I'm, I'm really glad. I don't know if it's like a big corporate owner or what, but yeah. So Oh, it's tough. Like venues, they they they're one of those. They're like restaurants. They just they operate on the margins. It's really, oh, yeah. it's really like just getting it up and opening and maintaining it. It's you know it, it, most like unless you have other backing, unless you own the building for other purposes. There's really they don't have a chance during this pandemic. That's that's yeah. just the reality of it. And and even prior to COVID, uh, key venues have basically you know just become condos. And we'll get into specific ones in the handy dandy timeline I created. Um, but on the um, on the positive side, CBC recently launched its first ever Canada Listens series, a sort of companion to Canada Reads, and it was a discussion of the most influential Canadian albums. Uh, unlike Canada Reads, they did it all time instead of just this year. Okay. And so, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I know there's kind of the, I don't want to say obvious ones because I would include those too, but like The Con and Joyful Rebellion and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. 
I forget which Buffy St. Marie album it was, but um, the winner was Cardinal Officiel's Quest for Fire, which was defended by Kathleen okay. Newman Bermang, which I say noble winner, although I was on Team Joyful Rebellion also because it was defended by comedian Andrew Fung, whom I love. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so back on the negative side, because there, there is sadly a lot of negative associated with this. Uh, for years now at the CRTC, all of Canada's major broadcasters have argued in favor of being allowed to lessen their CanCon or Canadian content commitments. Yes. Um, and in particular, Bell Media um, has increasingly moved away from commitments to CanCon whenever it's able to. And it appears to, um, from some of its recent mass layoffs, mostly be moving away from anything that isn't news programming and U.S. acquisitions. Like, it's CanCon is, it's news. It's even moving away from sports, meaning the one media giant that formerly, I mean, it does still technically own a Canadian quote-unquote music network, mm -hmm. has pretty much signaled that it's not doing anything with it anymore. Yeah. Now, that's not to say Canadian music hasn't found success in the last few years, um, especially with a lot of our exports. The Weeknd performed at the Super Bowl this year. Uh, Drake is pretty much the biggest artist on the planet. Um, I, I think we just might be at a time when musical success as a Canadian artist basically means you're finding it outside of Canada because we're really lacking the infrastructure to fully support our artists here. Oh, we don't have the scale. That's the big thing. Not at all. Like when you, when yeah. you, like anyone in the music industry, when you're talking about, uh, you know, regions and markets, like, you, you know, Canada, it, it's such a, a fractional market compared to the United States and, you know, a lot of Europe at the end of the day. So it's, it's you know, Canada's more just, it's, it's just attached to the States in a lot of ways. And I think like really, you know, at the end of the day, you know, CanCon is one thing, the the way it's been used to, like, promote Canadian artists, but I don't know if a lot of the artists who, like, became, uh, I don't know what you call it, CanCon darlings in a way, just, like, you know, really, like, leaned in and relied on CanCon, I don't think a lot of them really broke in the States. Like, they weren't the artists no. that took it across the board and, like, became international acts, you know? Like, yeah. Drake used video fact a bit. Uh, like, I'm sure he used certain avenues. He definitely benefited from CanCon, absolutely, uh, mm -hmm. like, over here. But, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think CanCon was really a star maker in an international sense. And I think, like, yeah. you know, in the conversation we're having today, a lot of the stuff I was looking at was just, like, what, you know, because there was a time, like, when indie rock was kind of climbing up to be like the biggest genre in rock at least you know i think pop music was also having a renaissance at the time so there's like some huge pop acts and pop songs that were coming out while indie rock yeah. was like climbing up to like uh, what its peak was but like a lot of the peak bands were canadian bands like i think a, a lot of the talking about like what's peak canadian indie rock is just like when were we doing peak indie rock in general <laughs> uh, in a lot of ways yeah. And, and I mean, with your discussion, I think you're absolutely right that CanCon wasn't necessarily a star maker outside of Canada. And I, I it's a weird question to ask yourself, was that the, was that the goal? Was that the end game? Um, and I think if you want to make money, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So, <laughs> no, I think it, but, like if, yeah. an, if an artist is trying to build. You know, it, like, you look at the Tragically Hip. At the end of the day, they were very Canadian-focused. They didn't have a lot of interest in going outside of there. They had a very successful career. They built a base. You know, they, they did fine. Um, that's okay to make that as, like, your scope. But a lot of the time, like, it, if someone's trying to become successful as a musician, as an as an artist, they're trying to go international. They're trying to become someone known. Yeah. 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 
By the way, I'm also noting the irony. Uh, you can't quite see it, but that we're talking about CanCon and supporting Canadian artists. And I am unfortunately wearing the shirt of my favorite band, which is a Philadelphia-based band. Uh-huh. So uh, uh, joke's on me. That's okay. Um, we might talk about a Canadian band who once wrote a song about Philadelphia. There you go. Actually, you know what? I did not have Colorado on there. But oh, really? I'm, I wrote Colorado down. Nice. And it's also interesting because I was talking about the kind of regional divide. Mm -hmm. uh, And they're the only notable band I can think of 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 this era, um, not, you know, because I wouldn't count the hip among this era, Mm. uh, from the 613. Okay. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. The Ottawa Kingston. Yeah, they're they're from like the South Ottawa, like Kempville area, I believe, which I I used to have a roommate from Kempville. Yeah. Would that be be described as the Valley? No, that is not the valley. Okay. South Ottawa is Kemptville, or I think residents of it call it Contemptville. Right. Um, and uh, it's it's also separate from like the suburbs and stuff where my brother lives, like Canada yeah. and stuff. Um, but I mean, a- ask me to explain the layout of Ottawa and I'm, I'm useless as tits on an owl, man. Um, <laughs> so um, it, it occurred to me um, as I was writing this that probably the easiest thing to do would be to split it into crucial dates and years. Mm-hmm. I noticed I noticed you added a timeline as well. I mostly stayed away from releases because I know we are going to talk about releases later, but I'd say if you want yeah. to jump in at key years with what some of your favorite releases uh, were, I think that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like I went really yeah. just like point form stuff. You know, I was just writing down like what, what are things and stuff and when did it happen at certain... <laughs> Uh, but yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, my first official bullet point here was 2003, because that was kind of when I think this started coming into its own. However, I, I will note that there are a lot that laid groundwork in the 90s. And I mean, even while I would never describe them as indie, you are right that the hip is instrumental to a lot of these, a lot of these musicians uh you know, Genesis, I think almost every modern Canadian rock band counts them as an inspiration. You've also got uh, Our Lady Peace, who, you know, for as much as I'm sure they took a quality downturn, I mean, they were it for Canadian rock for so long. Well, yeah. And then, yeah. And Um, that that era of Canadian, like, 90, you know, Bare Naked Ladies as well, you know, that era mm -hmm. of, like, the 90s Canadian rock and, you know, like, kind of where they fit into that alternative rock uh, ecosystem uh, yeah. that really evolved into indie in a lot of ways. Yeah, and be- before that just became the music your dad likes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would be remiss if I didn't talk about one uh, 90s superstar, because even one of my top 10 albums is from 97. I know he's a big inspiration to you, Matthew Good and Matthew Good Band. Um, some, of, I mean, I, I feel like everyone regards Beautiful Midnight as his best. I'm a big proponent of Underdogs as his best yeah, album. I, I would say Underdogs <laughs> is his best album, too. Under, Underdogs is like that. That's the one that has the international hit on it. Um, yes, and it just it it has everything beautiful. Midnight has, but it's like it's a little more concise. It's a little more you know. It's got that nineties. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when was which one was Hello Time Bomb on? Hello Time Bomb was Beautiful Midnight. Okay, because I, I do think Hello Time Bomb is my favorite song by him. But uh, Okay, so the first year that I actually had on here was 2003, and I think um, 2003 is uh, a big year because of one production company founding, that's Arts and Crafts Productions, which initially started out as basically just a broken social scene uh, producing record label. Yeah. Um, well, actually, so I would, yeah. I would argue, and I, w- I would jump back to what we were talking about with uh, Matthew Goodband, and Our Lady yep. Peace and kind of like that era of 90s alt-rock because I think like mm-hmm. there, there's a point where things transitioned and I think like what 
you know, those bands, like, they had a few singles, but I don't think they became, like, big international acts. They're more like, they they were more considered one-hit wonders in a lot of ways, you know? It's kind of like how with Bare Naked Ladies, they were, quote-unquote, international, but I don't know an American who could name a Bare Naked Ladies song besides One Week. Exactly. Um, yeah, or you I know. guess if I had a million dollars, I don't know. I, I put a few feelers out on Twitter, like, do Americans know Broken Social Scene? You know, do Americans know Matthew Goodband? Do, and the one thing I got is Americans know Tegan and Sarah if they're gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you're right. And there was, there was very much a transition. I mean, one thing about Much Music is I've always, even as a kid, I didn't like comparisons between Much Music and MTV. And what I find is if you look at MTV and when people started complaining that MTV, you know, doesn't even play music anymore, that happened almost 10 years later to um to much music and i feel like it's because much music never had its equivalent of the real world but like you could still no. get things like the countdown and stuff um in the late 90s whereas the late 90s mtv was was a joke music wise basically they they were kind of you know they did what much music ended up doing at a mm-hmm. certain point but yeah in the 90s much music was very it was, it was so scrappy and young and I, <laughs> I i feel like everyone running the show was in their early 30s and just like yeah. into alternative culture and just wanted to mess around. And that was so the great era of the VJs. I mean, VJs continued to be a thing even like when I was in university and stuff. But um, people like Rick Campanelli, who now like have gone on to become conventional stars, like that's the one regarding which you can really use MTV as an analog because there were so many people who started out as like MTV reporters who have just become, you know, reporter reporters now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As a, as a springboard into a greater media career a lot of the time, which makes sense, you know, and like, you know, George Strombolopoulos, he became a radio personality these days. Um, yeah. A lot of them, like, stayed in, I think, broadcast, from what I understand. I think Sukin Lee tried to do, she did, like, a bit of indie acting, but she did, it didn't really take off to a point. Yeah, I mean, she became a CBC darling, uh, which I don't even know if she still has a, a CBC uh, show anymore. Yeah, yeah um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I honestly haven't paid as much attention to the CBC's non-news content in a long time. Yeah, but um, actually, so I, but I would say like the the point that I think the transition happened was mm-hmm. Godspeed, you Black Emperor. Yeah, I think they were like because in a lot of ways they set the template. Like they they were the end of like the earnest kind of like alternative goofy can- and because they were so heavy you know it's like you don't yeah you don't recommend godspeed it just to a friend just like oh yeah check out this it's <laughs> like but no no these are these are four track albums with tracks mm-hmm. that average 20 minutes that are <laughs> instrumental say for like field recordings of usually like kind of fucked up stuff and just these movements you know it's like yeah. godspeed is like it's you go into a dark room you put on headphones mm-hmm. and at some point you're going to cry <laughs> yes godspeed which i i haven't i haven't listened to a lot of godspeed i will admit but uh there is a direct correlation with how much um how much godspeed i listened to and how much uh pot i was smoking how much shrooms i was doing that's so, fair yep absolutely yes. their movements yeah. and they're they're very they're very emotional and uh mm-hmm. but like they broke that template like the, there was no earnestness there there was no like mm-hmm. it, it was the you know, they, they were coming at it. They, a lot of them were, you know, passionately uh, mutual aid anarchists. 
you know, they're working outside the system, no interest in labels, no interest in, you know, having kind of pop appeal, but they set that template where it's a group of passionate musicians coming together as a collective who have other projects that are kind of bringing those influences into it. And it's like creating this mishmash that just like explodes way mm -hmm. beyond the borders of Canada and just like becomes, yep. you know, a movement onto itself. Uh, and in a lot of ways, broken social scene, like, went in that template like they kind of fit yes. that same mold and like even arcade fire to a lesser extent yeah i i think arcade fire i would agree on that i, I mean it's hard to separate arcade fire from the mainstream success they experienced but i don't think you could ever paint them as an artist that was just chasing success no. uh, commercially. And I mean, I think a lot of this, uh, you know, you talk about the transition. I look at a lot of this as a weird sandwich. And on one end, you have, you know, the hip and rush and stuff and the bands that were creating music for mass appeal. And, you know, they they it's not that it was without soul and without artistry, but it was a goal of sounding like this you know, finding commercial success through this demographic. Mm -hmm. And then in the middle, you had more insular stuff that was more music created for myself and music that I, I'll say didn't necessarily have a direct analog in the U.S. Like you could never say, oh, um, even something like, well, yeah, broken social scene. You could never say, oh, it's the blank of Canada. There is no non-Canadian equivalent that you could compare it to. That's it. That's kind of what mm -hmm. it, and, you know, same with Godspeed. Yeah, and so now in the era that we're in now, even with rock music, because I mean the the biggest export from Canada right now is undeniably hip hop and pop. Mm -hmm. um, e now I would say we're back to that other piece of bread, um, and I mean I, I don't hate bread; bread's delicious, but it is very much music constructed uh, to um, to find commercial success. It is you know to appeal to a specific demographic. I mean I I love our Kells, but their their songs are now sports teams anthems. Uh, and in Boston pizza commercials. Well, that, and, and that's um, kind of what indie yeah. rock became, though, unfortunately. I think, like, a lot of, like, the indie rock sounds like they just got co-opted by commercials. And it's just, like, yes. it became commercial music. And it's music you hear in YouTube ads is what, like, a lot of the indie <laughs> rock sounds. Unless you get into, like, deeper experimental, you know, you get into the Grizzly Bears or, <laughs> you know what I mean? The Which animal makes me wonder, is this just us, like, getting older? It's like, oh, this is dad music now. Like, I'm basically a dad. <laughs> You know, um, so 2005, another big founding that I think is important is Dine Alone Records, which I was convinced that they were defunct, but they are not. Uh, so that's good. I always loved everything that came out of Dine Alone Records. Uh, notable acts, uh, probably its biggest act being Alexis on Fire. They also uh, had Attack and Black on their label and all the, uh, I'll say, Alexis on Fire adjacent uh Buddy spin-offs uh, spin and outposts, as well as yeah. Monine, I believe, was a Dynalone act. Yeah, I, I think yeah. so. Yeah. And so in that, uh, in that Alexis on Fire family of bands, Dallas Green released his first solo album as City and Color, um, which, um, you know, was pretty successful for him both in and outside of Canada. It also, to me, that was the first thing I noticed as a reflection of that was what was big everywhere at the time, that yeah. sound. Yep. People are turning uh, down then, the distortion. It was yeah. we're 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 getting clean guitars, we're getting acoustics, we're gonna we're, yeah. we're gonna get emotional, but we're gonna get softer about it. That was the <laughs> that, was, that was kind of the tone at that time. Emotional men with sleeve tattoos and funny hats. Exactly. 
2005 was also the first non-broken social scene band to be released under the arts and crafts label, which was Most Serene Republic. Um, Here's where, with all the polar, uh, with all the bullet points I have, I really gotta say I started to realize 2004 through 2007 was such an awesome time. Um, but the undercurrent of it, there was, I'll say there was a sinister undercurrent. Um, so if you weren't paying attention, which we weren't, we were teenagers at the time, um, you would know that there was, you know trouble afoot. So in 2006, Much Music, uh, which was, I believe, previously owned by Chum, uh, was purchased by former Bell Globe Media, uh, now Bell and its subsidiary, Bell Media. Mm -hmm. um, 2006 was also when Death From Above 1979 broke up for the first time after only one album, but it was an awesome album. It was. Um, and yeah, uh, we'll, we will get to that. Uh, the Polaris Prize was also established in 2006, which at the time... Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that's when they started doing that. Okay. I could have sworn it was much older than that, but I, I think prior to the Polaris Prize, the only real mainstream recognition for Canadian music was the Junos. So, um, mm. yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. The Polaris Prize, I mean, there's some controversial entries down the line, but... Uh, Here's the first bit of controversy in 2006, which is Cardinal Officiel says he will no longer attend the Junos and will no longer, his words, be their monkey. He accused them of tokenizing him while failing to recognize the majority of legitimate Canadian hip-hop artists, uh, as well as choosing to have the Black Eyed Peas perform at the previous year's ceremony. Um, also noteworthy that uh, rap had been a category at the Junos, but prior to the 2000s had not been included in the main ceremony. So essentially, Cardinal Officiel, uh, who had been greatly successful in Canada at the time, accused, um, accused the Junos of tokenizing him as well as tokenizing hip hop and other black genres, uh, which is the first of many major criticisms of the Junos. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even as I was compiling like the most noteworthy albums from this area era, I mean, you've got Cardinal, you've got some great stuff by Chaos, you've got um, uh, uh, Shad, notable Laurier grad Shad. <laughs> um, but the one thing, I mean, this was a magical time for music, but we can't ignore that it was an insanely white time. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Even someone someone like Buffy St. Marie, um, didn't get the pl who had been making music for decades did not get the play of you know screaming white boys <laughs> oh yeah no not at all yeah uh so uh the other big thing in 2006 arcade fire was nominated for album of the year at the grammys um and i looked them up they were getting decent international play after funeral uh so you know the, they were on their way to becoming international sensation. Of course, we are still a few years away from them winning album of the year. Mm -hmm. The big Grammy move, but yes. Oh, we're old. Um, 2007 was when Leslie Feist's music video uh, and her song 1234 was featured in an iPod commercial because it was so colorful and whimsical. And um, she's since talked about she, she doesn't regret doing the commercial, but just that it brought an overwhelming amount of attention to her um and she really i mean she'd been a solo artist prior to that she'd also collaborated with like broken social scene but she really really broke out as a solo artist for a couple years after that oh yeah she was all over tv uh mm -hmm. i remember stephen colbert loved her he, he brought oh, yeah. her on a couple times and just that song was everywhere i remember, I remember yeah. hearing it quite a bit um you know out in the wild 
and and it's such a kid friendly song like not just with the lyrics but like with the tempo it it's is. so like happy <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's yep, like basically. something gummy bears would march to <laughs> kind of yeah 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 you just you just picture like you know a little, a little parade of teddy bears walking down walking through the forest <laughs> singing that yeah. So and, uh, back in the theme of you could uh, hear kind of the, the winds of change, uh, CBC Radio 2 discontinues the Radio 3 simulcast and uh, Radio 3 uh, increasingly becomes relegated to a digital only service. Of course, now CBC Radio 2 is called CBC Music, um, but it's still uh, it's a different scene and we could get a little bit into that. Yep. yep. It, was, it was a transitional area for uh, the transitional era for a lot of media at that time. Um, yes. Yeah, we we were getting our footing on web media, but it's like there was almost there was still like a separation. It, it was that weird time where there was still a separation between like internet music and like internet culture and you know mainstream real culture. They hadn't quite like merged together. It was like coming yeah. into the 2010s where it really started to skew, and the two like started to kind of intermingle. And now there's no distinction at all. It's their yeah. the mainstream culture is internet culture at this point, really. Yeah. And and one of the interesting things as as the quote unquote media expert among us, because I, I spent, you know, six years covering the media and media buying industry, one thing that was notably happening, not necessarily in the music industry, but in media at this particular time, was mm. that as big media companies like Bell Media, like um uh, the Globe and Mail, Tour Star, um, were noticing like, oh, this this internet fad sure is big. Um <laughs> What they did was they did start, you know, making their online inventory into sellable ad space and they started trying to monetize them online, but they ridiculously undervalued online ad, uh, online ad costs. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of people do, who don't necessarily have a background in economics think like, well, if you realize it's undervalued, just raise the, raise the price. And it's like, you can't just do that after years of giving people like, you know, the add space for the cost of nothing. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons why our media and, and all over the world, this isn't just Canada, is in such dire straits right now is because, you know, their print as print revenue decreased, you could have the most popular online destination in the world and it's not it's it's not compensating for your print losses no. because you never valued your digital properties to begin with. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing. And it, yeah. it's so frustrating because it's so much cheaper to produce. It's so much cheaper to replicate. It's, you know, you don't have supply chains to deal with. You don't have distribution. You're just dealing with, you're dealing with developers and servers and things that can all be maintained in one room, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. You, you could have the healthiest margins in the world. if And so that's why I get a little prickly. I mean, I, I pay for things like subscription costs and stuff, but when people get... Um, kind of on a high horse about paywalls like well we yeah. wouldn't be in this uh position if you you didn't you know you guys need to pay for news it's like well actually it was you know big corporations fault for undervaluing their own product and now they're making it our problem yeah um it yeah. used to be advertisers who paid for a lot of the news but now they just didn't set up the business model correctly and here we are yep so 2009, and uh, this is when I, I have in my own personal notes, 2009, 2010 uh, was when the winds of change became a little more gusty and a little more obvious. Oh, yeah. Um, Matthew Good accuses the Juno Awards of not promoting Canadian music at a grassroots level and accuses the Canadian industry of only pretending to support local musicians. Yeah. I mean... At that point, I, I don't know how uh, big TV was involved with uh, the Juno Awards. And I, I mean, 
as as much as I have, you know, very anti-capitalist ideals, I don't necessarily think there's anything fishy or suspect about, uh, say, a presenting sponsor um, being involved like TD for the Junos. What I just think it is, is you have that money backing you and you're not using it to really create meaningful change. You're using it to, you know, spend more marketing dollars or whatever, or get a better venue. And he is kind of right. Well, that, what are award shows at the end of the day? Like, let's <laughs> let's be real. If not just selling airtime, just creating, trying to create valuable airtime that you can sell. Yeah. Um, so then on the positive side, uh, th- this book is broken is released, which is not just covering, uh, covering broken social scene, a few others uh, from that era. And then um, I, I almost didn't write this, but we, we will get to this um, because at the time, no one, no one knew. Um, Gameshi's infamous Billy Bob Thornton interview airs mm-hmm. uh, did draw international attention to the show. We will get to Gameshi mm-hmm. because I, I really do think the Gameshi scandal was a big stain on the music industry, like media too and radio as well. But what a stain on music that was. That kind of ended it for the CBC for me in a lot of ways. Yes, absolutely. And and, and everything that happened with Q after, because like Q, while not the same as much music and, and not really serving the same purpose as much music, I mean, Q was just a single show, but Q really um, was an instrumental part. I mean, I, I kind of avoided talking about it because, again, the Gameshi baggage, but Q was a huge, huge booster for Canadian musicians. And that was one of the ones that would actually have acts like Godspeed on uh, and discuss those things because Gameshi himself actually was a musician and thus was very plugged in to uh, to the scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 2010, um, this was at least, I think, a very joyful thing and a great thing to look back on, which was Scott Pilgrim versus the world is adapted into a movie. And yes. uh, what fun that was, you know, getting to see Lee's Palace on the screen, getting to see the old Sonic Boom location. Um, you know, oh, it, it, it was, it was so... about all of it. It was about <laughs> Toronto. It was about indie rock. It was about, you know, being a 20 something in the city, just trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And and even even the little touch of they could have had any uh, female musician do the voice of Envy Adams. Uh, but they, the fact that they chose Emily Haynes to do the voice of Envy Adams was so awesome because I think if, again, if you were a little skid like we were, uh, who love metric, you're just like, that's, that's the singer for metric. Awesome. She wrote the song too. I, it would not surprise me. And it's, it's good songs too. Like I mm-hmm. had read a few of the Scott Pilgrim graphic novels prior to it coming out. And so it was really cool to finally see it brought to life and actually hear what what the music really sounded like um i I almost think now that you look at it with um with kind of your hindsight glasses that scott pilgrim is like a nice love letter to this era it really is i i would are are we so is, is there a part of the show where we like we call when was the peak I mean, it's in previous episodes, it's happened at the end. Right. Uh, sometimes it happens when we're discussing it's like, you know what? This yeah. was the peak. Cause I, yeah, exactly. That's I, I would say this was the peak. I Like Scott Pilgrim was yeah. the peak because that's when it's the idea of like Canadian indie rock was just like everywhere. It was yeah. kind of, yeah, it, it reached peak saturation at that point. So I have a bit of a weird thing that I realize I've developed since I started doing this show, which is yes. um, not to sound not to sound like a Clinton, but it uh, depends on what your definition of peak is. Mm. And I think like, is it 
kind of this intense saturation of like everything is good and feel good and like it's just a consistent awesome or is it everything is really really high quality but then it falls off a cliff immediately after and it's that like peak but it's filled with dread and i really look at 2010 as that because uh let's talk about some of the some of the things in 2010 now this is neither a good nor a bad thing but it definitely to me is just a signal of Canadian music has changed, and that was a spunky young upstart named Aubrey Graham, better known as Drake, uh, the kid from Degrassi. He releases his first studio album, Thank Me Later, and he becomes a superstar essentially overnight. And he was, and I, I think remains, uh, the biggest export from Canada at the of the 2010s. It, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> there, there's a few parallels you can draw to Drake as Justin Bieber. Um, not, you know, not in the music, but just like it was the co-sign with a very well-established American artist in their field, um, brought them on tour, got them features, got the, like put them on a stage and they just took off. Like they just springboarded, you know, uh, Justin Bieber had Usher, Drake had Lil Wayne. And both of them consistently. I mean, I, listen, I was not into Justin Bieber during his, uh, his early years because he was essentially a teeny bopper artist, but I mean... As as I've as I've softened to pop and hip hop music, I got to admit the guy makes good music. Um, he's he's a big Leafs fan, so uh, he and I have that in common. But, he's talented. Uh, he's like yeah, he's someone like yeah. I can say he is a he is a talented musician. You know, he knows what he's doing. He can sing. He can perform. He he can he can do it. At the end of the day, and I would say like within hip hop, I mean, I think Drake has worked in slightly different subgenres a lot and i would say that beer has as well i mean if you listen to something like sorry like that's a pop song with a dance hall beat like that's a really cool thing to do um i mean you can get into the ethics of uh, of a white guy kind of trying to do his version of dance hall but nevertheless like it is still undeniably playing in a different subgenre mm -hmm. yeah so here's the big one with 2010 uh which was bell globe media Request the CRTC to lessen music requirements. It was at 50%. They requested to lessen it down to 25%. It also requested a repositioning of its Canadian programming. CRTC did deny this request at the time, but Bell Globe Media was on the record as saying it no longer considered music videos valuable to the network because they're available elsewhere through things like YouTube. And whether or not that is true, I, I would argue that it is true, it undeniably pissed off and alienated a lot of musicians. It completely changed what it was. Like, who, you know, people watch yeah. the channel for a specific purpose. Like, when I was a kid, I watched it. I watched it for the music videos. I watched it for just, like, the culture pieces. I watched mm -hmm. it for the live in-studio interview performances. But they just dropped all of that. And it's like what what's left it just became they're just replaying things that you would see on other networks essentially they're just like yeah they they went the way of NTV eventually as i think yeah. any of you know any of these companies like yeah <laughs> it's it's it took 15 years but they did finally go the way of MTV i i think mergers the worst and part... acquisitions that's what yeah. happens <laughs> i think the the worst part of that was to me was not just that they tried to lessen the CanCon and like that the you know there was some truth to the fact that music videos were available elsewhere but it was them actually frankly having the balls to say it because i mean anything you say in a CRTC hearing is public record and so for it to just show its cards and visibly say to the uh musicians that 
many did kind of depend on them as like at least a national stage, maybe not definitely not a global stage anymore, but a national stage, basically saying like, you're not our currency anymore. And that's it. And it's, it's like, you know, like I said, I have my qualms with CanCon as a concept as a whole and like how advantageous it is for like artists on an international scale. But to just drop it completely is just like, you're just closing the door on that. You're just, yeah. you're, you're completely closing the door on like a, a way that people, and you know, you can't adapt. Like it, it's one thing to like close your television network because at the end of the day, it's like, you know, television is going the way of the dinosaur. Let's be real. But you can make a music centered programming online network. You can make music, you know, keep a music video countdown, keep a rotation, keep, there's so many things that you can bring to people with that model that just doesn't exist anymore, you know? And it, yeah, yeah it, like it's all consolidated social media. Like right now, TikTok really is where music is made. Like that's the music yeah. career maker is TikTok these days. Yeah. But, um, and, and who am I to complain about that? Um, <laughs> You know, it's brought us some great things like um, like Lil Nas X, like uh, and uh, God, I love that kid. You know, <laughs> just just keep filleting the devil. I love you. Absolutely. You're doing amazing, sweetie. <laughs> um, he's, he's, he's power bottom all the way down. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love him. Um, so one one nice little victory, because I think, um, like I said about Bare Naked Ladies in one week, um, there was still like the thrill of being a Canadian band who had a song featured in an American show, an American movie. And so I really wanted to give a shout out, mainly because it's my favorite show. But Timber Tambor's Magic Arrow was featured in an episode of Breaking Bad, which gave the band a huge boost. Um, because mm -hmm. I do think they, they're, I mean, still pretty small scale when you think about it, because if you're not Taylor Swift, you are small scale as a musician these days. Yeah. But um I would say they're they're at kind of international fame. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who didn't even know they were Canadian, which is cool. Yeah, well, they you know they they were one of those bands that like they they got a degree of notoriety, but they didn't break out in the way that you know an arcade, an arcade fire did. Yeah. Um, so uh, the this was the first uh, I recorded of notable uh, venue closures, which was the Big Bop closed in 2010. Oh yeah, and, yeah, yeah. That was yep. That well, that that changed the Toronto local scene, you know, because like that, like Queen West was never the same after that. You know, you see, you still had a couple. You know, you had Bovine, you had uh, mm -hmm. what was it, the Rec Room, I think. Um, Rec no. Room was Annex. Um, yeah. but are you thinking of Velvet Underground? Yes, Velvet Under Underground. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah. Um, which uh, that was 2017, and man, or no, 2015, I think, and. Uh, yeah, I, I wrote so many closures in that one. Um, so yeah, we, with, you know, 2010, I'll say I won't use peak because I'm insistent about my peak terminology, but I, I think with 2010, you would say it was a bubble that burned. It, it, we'll, we'll call it the commercial peak. Yes. Yeah. Because, and then 2011, one nice thing, again, uh, this is artists finding success abroad, sheepdogs were on the cover of Rolling Stone and like, that's not nothing. Like Rolling Stone is still very much an influential magazine, and it really was in 2011. Oh yeah. Um, and then this was the big year. Arcade Fire won Album of the Year at the Grammys, and um, yeah, I think The Suburbs is actually a really good album. I know I feel like there's this oh, weird retroactive shitting on it because you know it was so commercially successful. I love it. I think oh, we no. used to wait. Um, what they did with the concept for that video, even of um, I don't know if you ever did that. Um. It was yes. like you input your address. Yeah, the little tour the Google the Maps uh, widget. So that much they fun. Created. Yeah. Yeah. 
Very um, clever and like, you know, avant-garde, using technology in kind of crude, cute ways. Yeah, I mean, there were... I, I think we've really moved away from this, but um, I would say now with, with COVID and with especially Canada being so locked down, I think now's the time to bring back some of that experiential quality to music. Um, I, I think there was a word that we used for it uh, when I was covering digital media. I think it was called transmedia, which now I just associate with like cool gender stuff as well. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, the idea of experiential, um, you know, true multimedia, I would, I would love if that had a little comeback. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but then Broken Social Scene takes a two-year break from performing um, because, I mean, they really... There's Broken Social Scene, the recording band, but the big, bigger thing, I think, is Broken Social Scene, the live band. And I think it's... There are a lot of musicians that you'd say, like, oh, their live show's better. With Broken Social Scene, I would say their live show is integral to who they are. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's... Brendan Canning and Kevin Drew mm-hmm. and whoever else they bring along. Yeah. <laughs> broken um, social scene and friends. Yeah. Basic, but broken, you can't really say that either because broken social scene is when Brendan Canning and Kevin Drew bring everyone together. Like them just on their own isn't, I wouldn't consider that broken social scene. You yes. need the like half dozen other people behind them <laughs> or, <laughs> yes. or dozen, H- however yeah. many they're bringing out at the time. Um, There's, <laughs> but that was there the template, so many, you know. Yeah. Um, it was like when I saw Arcade Fire at Bonnaroo. It, one of the greatest things is like there was one guy on stage who was with the band who just had a tom in his, like a tom drum in his hand and a drumstick, and he just all he did was play the tom. He just danced around stage and hit this tom, and at the, at the end of the concert, he just like threw it on the ground and just like almost popped the speakers. <laughs> There are, and, and I'm, I'm sad that I can't think of any examples. I totally should have written this down. But one thing that started annoying me a couple of years ago, um, similar to there was an era when every musician or peop, not even musicians, music fans were all saying, oh, you know, this album's actually a concept album. Like, is it a concept album or does it just you know revolve around a theme? Because it's a different thing. But um, a lot of uh, musicians were referring to like, oh, this is more of a collective. I'm like, is it actually a collective or do they just have a lot of collaborations? Because there's a difference between a band or a musician that has a lot of collaborations and an actual collective. And Broken Social Scene's quality was, it was a collective ongoing project. Yeah, ex- yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, yeah, I would describe Broken Social Scene as collective. And a lot of like the ways yeah. Arcade Fire came together was, uh, as I understand it, very collective. Um, this this is very much a Toronto specific joke or not really joke snark I guess but I feel like every damn clothing store in Toronto ha- is called a collective now and I'm like you're not a collective you're just a store. It it became a buzzword you know yes. it took on it took on buzzword properties. <laughs> yes, uh, so 2011 was also the year that Bell and Globe Media officially parted ways uh, and Bell and specifically its subsidiary Bell Media became the sole official owner of Much Music which then had its name changed to Much. So, writings the writings aren't on the wall. The writings are on the front fucking door. Oh yeah, that's yeah. That that's when it completely transitioned. I think that's when they stopped doing. You know, the the I I don't know exactly the year, but that was around mm-hmm. the time they stopped doing broadcasts on the Queen Street floor. Yep. By the open windows. Oh. That's when they stopped like just doing like the street walking intermission pieces. That that that's yeah. when they they basically stopped using VJs. To Which any, is like, in- yeah. yeah. 
it's interesting because 2012 is the year I moved to Toronto. And uh, I mean, at first when I moved to Toronto, I was working in the North End. But um, when I uh, would be downtown, because I didn't live too far from downtown, like I lived in like Sherborne and Blur area. Blur. Um, when I would walk down Queen Street and be like, you know, I always dreamed when I was an adult, I would walk down the street and see people crowded outside the windows. And now it's not even that building is not even, quote unquote, the much music building. It's just the Bell Media office. That's it. Yeah. Um, 2012 uh, was an interesting year because Tegan and Sarah released Heartthrob, which is super um, positively received and commercially successful. But that was their first notably more synth pop album. Um, and it was, you know, probably an indication of the changing sound of indie, you know, uh not just in Canada, across the board. That was what indie started to sound like. You know, we were, even on a global scale, we were done with stuff like Band of Horses and stuff like we were more like, okay, let's add some cool pop to it. Well, it became an intersection, really, because pop started taking influence from indie, and then indie mm-hmm. started becoming more pop-like. And then at a certain point, they really became indistinguishable, I think. That mm-hmm. was the time where they really started to mesh together, and that was mm-hmm. when pop music and hip-hop just completely took over yeah and uh the other sad thing about 2012 which is you know this is r.i.p teenage brie alexis on fire had their farewell tour Uh. um (laughs) you know what though the live at cops coliseum recording is one of my favorite recordings ever i I fucking love that uh i I didn't get to see it myself because it was hamilton which i love that they chose ham i mean Post indie peak, Hamilton has been a very tiny little uh, little indie art, not just music, but art haven in uh, in Ontario. That's which what I've like. heard. Yeah, um, having spent a lot of time in Hamilton, I would say it is that kind of similar quality that I was talking about. If you walk down the street and you're like, "Oh, there's you know, there's this random musician." I mean, the Arkells, uh, as it turns out, own a bar there. Um, I just learned They're that from recently. Hamilton, aren't they? They are, they're not all originally from the town of Hamilton, but they met when they were at McMaster and they named okay. themselves after a street that one of them lived on, which is Arkell Street. I know Max is from Toronto and he actually grew up in like Kensington area because he went to Ryerson Junior Public School. Okay. Yeah. Um, my sister is buddies with uh, the keyboardist's wife because she is also a photographer. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, t- 2013 uh, was when Godspeed refused to attend the Polaris Prize, mm. and they specifically cited the over-commercialization of the Polaris Prize. I read their entire statement. They went off on Polaris. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They're, they're not um, about that. Not at all. Um, <laughs> Monine also declared their hiatus, which Monine was never as big as something like Alexis on Fire, but I do feel like um, those of us that were true sad skids uh there's always a special place in our heart for Monine. <laughs> you know, they they were that like indie emo kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. When emo was like veering towards indie, I feel Monine fit into that area. They're yes. never quite punk. They're never quite, they're never super heavy. They're always no. kind of earnest, nerdy Canadian boys. Uh, they, I, I would almost put them in the same category as weaker thins. Yes. They're like a slightly heavier weaker thins, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's, it's something, you know, someone recently compared, uh, and it was a, a friend of mine who is American, compared mm. the weaker thans to the mountain goats. And I'm just like, I I want to say you're wrong, but I can't successfully argue against it. I'm actually not familiar with the mountain goats. Oh, man. 
I'm, I'm going to send you so many songs after this. All right, um, cool. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd love the Mountain Goats. Cool. Um, they're they are not American, or they are not Canadian. Sorry. I, I'm just um, thinking of that uh, yeah. Taylor Swift meme video of the screaming goats <laughs> intercut with. <laughs> I knew I thought yeah. you were trouble when you walked in. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, um, the uh, with with Monine, I one thing I got to say. I loved them in high school. I can't come back to them specifically because you said like the, the emo-ness. And I was thinking like, how did we define emo when I was a kid? And like the, the things, I mean, remember we always used to make fun of that from first to last song, Emily. And I think what, what the, it was the whininess oh, that yeah. Wait, made it's, it, here, you know, parody level. Going back to, so I, I took some time just to like go back to a lot of this stuff and like kind of take yeah. a high school memory lane playlist <laughs> trip. And uh, just so like, I hate to say it, but our music it's in bad, high school folks. sucked <laughs> <laughs> so much. It like really yeah. like when the the indie rock, it was like the death from above was the first stuff where I was like, okay, this is actually good. Yeah. This is legitimately good. Like the stuff you know, refuse shape of punk to come. God, legitimately yeah. excellent album. I I think like anyone who's like yeah yeah like musicianship, writing, production, like. A plus, but like so much of that stuff from that scene, like taking back There's... Sunday, even a lot oh, of brand God. new, like just does not hold up. And it doesn't have it doesn't have like a vibe or energy that I want to listen to anymore. I just music is almost it, it's changed in purpose a little bit, you know, it has. And I think I think it works when you're a teenager because you're filled with so many emotions as a teenager. And that was it wasn't just that the lyrics were very emotional. The instrumentation was highly uh, emotional. It was very, um, it was just filled with like, there's a very physical feeling of being a teenager. Cause I was thinking like, why did I used to always say so much stupid shit as a teenager? Like I was a person who didn't do a lot of stupid shit. Like I didn't take a lot of risks or anything, but I used to say a lot of stupid shit. And it's like, I had the physical feeling of basically ants in my pants all the time as a mm. teenager. And mm -hmm. I think like the music that we listened to very much reflected that. That said, there is a lot of stuff that I feel like I can come back to that I really like. Um, I can go back to most Alexis on Fire. It, it definitely doesn't fill me with the same energy that it filled me with when I was a teenager. But mm -hmm. I would say the biggest difference between then and now is that my favorite album by Alexis on Fire is now what I used to think was my least favorite, which is Old Crow's Young Cardinals. I still right. think Crisis is like a very close tied second and at the time i was like this is the best thing ever mm -hmm. but man old crazy and cardinals you know what is i think the best lexus on fire song in my in my opinion of course uh the northern that song is in my head all the time <laughs> the the big change for me uh, like going back to lex on fire it's night and day when rat Baird came into it uh, yeah that was second album right it's crisis Oh, it was Crisis. It was Crisis yeah. when they got Ratbeard on the drums. And that was like, uh, that that really, <laughs> like, marked with, their kind of material from, like, kind of the early era to, like, more polished, more mature, mm -hmm. just tighter as a band. And I, I think with, and what's interesting is in my cultural studies major, um, my uh, 101 prof, who he had specialized a lot in the cultural studies of music, he was talking about, like, listen to the parallels between punk drumming and country drumming. Like, there's a lot of really similar, especially old school country and bluegrass. Um, and American punk. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> um, and with, um, yeah, you're right, because like you mentioned refused earlier, like that's more, uh, you can't compare that to country, you can compare that more to dance music, which the type of dance music that never really made it big in North America. Yeah. Um, but um, no, with Alexis on Fire, you know, we were talking about like the distinction between like emo and when emo started to intersect with indie. Mm. I think Alexis on Fire, their first two albums, you could argue had emo qualities to it. Uh you know, I wouldn't call them purely emo, but they were definitely uh, part of that movement. They were screamo. Yeah, yeah. They, they, and... they were specifically like that, the screamy brand of emo, and they were kind of like at the forefront of that scene um, yeah. that unfortunately got very contrived very quickly. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah the so... stuff, the early stuff that was good was pretty good. Did you ever listen to Glassjaw? Yes, Glass you got me into pretty, Glassjaw. <laughs> pretty. I didn't get in Glassjaw until like much, much later after like that scene had completely gone away. Um, then it might like, have oh, been. This is much better. <laughs> it might have been the bassist of your former band who uh, recommended Glassjaw to me. Oh, that's possible. Yeah, he would <laughs> yeah. have been into Glassjaw. Yeah. Yes. Um, which also, and again, this is not Canadian specific. In fact, I would argue that this is not a very Canadian thing. But how many of those bands do you like? Oh, sir, for me, I was not raised Christian. Looking back, I'm like, oh, this was a Christian band the whole time. <laughs> oh, so many of them were. That was kind of the, God, that was yeah. the yeah. And it, it, that yeah. scene, oh man, that there's oh. a lot to unpack from that scene. That, that's, yeah. all, that's a whole other podcast episode on its own, really. We're, Which we're, <laughs> yeah, we're veering into in some very different territory at this point. <laughs> Totally. So to bring it back to the Canadian stuff, just to finish off that thought on Alexis on Fire. Yes. Um, with uh, the two albums following Rat Beer joining the band, what I did find is you can hear a lot more punk in in their work. Um, again, like you said, American style punk. Mm. Um, but when I listen to certain songs like um, uh, Old Crows, We Are the Sound, We Are the End, um, you know, the, it's not I wouldn't put it up against punk greats. But I would say they became more of a punk band after mm -hmm. that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So uh, now we're getting to um, the kind of, I'll say, the death years. Because 2017 was when I stopped adding entries because that was when it's like, we know it's over. Uh, 2014, uh, and lest anyone think that I believe this is a positive, it is not. Spotify launches in Canada. Um, I asked my buddy, um, friend of the show and future uh, guest host, Josh Colm, who um, is a musician. Um, he was um, he's got a lot of bones to pick with Spotify and because mm -hmm. it's very hard to find a specific consensus as to what Spotify actually pays. And he said that's because it's not a set algorithm of like X cents per song. Um, right. It depends on a huge number of factors because, I mean, with all media companies and digital media companies, keeping your algorithm a secret and non-transparent is kind of key to your success. Oh, yeah. But mathematically, you can estimate it to be somewhere between 0.3 and 0.5 cents per stream, meaning you need roughly 250 streams in order to make $1. Um, there was also, in terms of really dark shit, uh, we, were, we finally got into the Gameshi scandal, mm -hmm. which, like, I, I there's a lot to unpack. And uh, for, because I do have some American listeners, um, Google it. Um, basically, Gian Gameshi, once one of the most powerful people in uh, or powerful hosts in Canadian media, a uh, CBC radio host, was accused of, uh, I think, sexual interference was his charge. Uh, there was one charge of sexual assault, uh, unwilling confinement, a few, a few different things that basically related to he uh, was accused of sexually abusing women under the guise of it's just friendly BDSM. Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, the, the 
big thing also, like we said, it was a real stain on the CBC, was the CBC had been accused of um, hearing complaints about Gameshi and his behavior in the workplace, including telling an employee that he wanted to hate fuck her uh, while on the clock and essentially doing nothing. CBC has been accused of protecting its stars a lot. Um, oh, yeah. He was obviously booted out from Q and it became a series of guest hosts. Um, I would har- highly recommend the book Secret Life by Kevin Donovan, uh, which talks not just about the scandal and the the failure of the court case because he was not convicted, uh, but also how influential Gameshi had been at the time and how kind of invincible he was in Canadian music. Um, I mean, one of the biggest things, I, she's not a musician I would count among the movement, but Lights, uh, who was born in our hometown, yay. Um, mm. She, um, you know, because she was definitely, like we said, when indie became pop and electronica, that was that was her game. Yes. That was who she was. Yeah, and but, she came uh, out of that punk yeah. scene as well. That kind of like screamo did. Um, yeah, because she, she was underground operations uh, in the early days, or like a lot of yeah. their people were involved with her management. Yeah, and she had that duet with Ten Second Epic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, so the Gameshi, uh, when Gameshi publicly lost her as an ally, that was like a big thing because like he made her into uh into more of an international star so yeah Uh, and then in final sad news elma combo closes uh i was just reading because i was like what is the status of the elma combo right now and it was march 6th that there was of 2020 that there was an article saying oh the elma combo is getting ready to reopen i'm like oh no so Um, it was one of the uh research in motion founders Uh, i think he was one of the guys that left early who bought the place uh with some partners um and then eddie kramer who's an engineer and produced Jimi hendrix back in the back in the day uh was involved in putting the space together wiring up because i i think what they wanted to do was like a combination venue recording studio live streaming studio okay Um, but they've they had hit a lot of snags along the way from what i heard i I don't know exactly uh but there's a you know they were set to actually launch and open right before Mm -hmm. the pandemic hit yeah um and then uh one bit of good news in 2014 death from above releases their first album in 10 years the physical world and you know what I would say almost as good as You're a Woman, I'm a Machine. It's a great album. It's I almost consider it a sequel to You're a Woman, I'm a Machine because they both have Same, a lot. Same, very true. The, yeah. the energy really kind of carries f- over with the two. You can really play the two albums back to back and like they almost yeah. sound like they're from the same sessions. The show that they did at the old Sonic Boom was my last time in that building. I think it was a lot of people's last time in that building. Mm. Oh, what a great show that was. Um, the only thing that sucked was, I would say, the new pornographers uh, opened for them. Bad fit. Bad no, fit. that is a bad fit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 2015 was the big year of no one cares, uh, except for all the really bad closures. So uh, this was a notable one to me. Uh, Dan Mangan says he's done playing cutesy music and releases an album under the moniker Dan Mangan and Blacksmith. Um, on a personal note, it's actually my favorite album by him. No one cared. It's like, yeah, go back to the cutesy music, Dan Mangan. Well, um, he, you know, he he's yeah. also one of those artists, you know, he's kind of like, you know, like the Japan droids or j- just like kind of got a little bit of attention, but never really broke the border. Yeah, I would say I would. And I would say if we're talking about like specifically the indie stuff, um, what is left of Canadian indie right now, it's like Dan Mangan, Joel Plaskett Emergency. It's all stuff that sounds like that, which is like mm-hmm. s- cool dad stuff, you know, Um 
Then, uh, so Much Music announces the creation of a digital multi-channel network. Again, no one cares. Yeah. Um, Shad named the new host of Q. Really, no one cares. No one like. And I feel bad. I think Shad's a great guy. He played a lot of shows at Laurier because he's from there. And I just think he is a delight. He never. He really never got to the level of recognition. I think he. Um, the Rose Garden was probably his biggest hit. But I think he was that part of that like joyful hip hop scene and so joyful earnest hip-hop yeah um he he was a good personality like he did that hbo yeah. series i believe yeah he was a so host I of that and like so he, he kind of became more of like a tv host than a rapper mm-hmm. like he be he, he was a rapper turned tv host and i think he kind of settled into that as a career which is all good like, that's I think how he's you can make well money yeah exactly yeah he's like i'm sure living quite well doing what he's doing and he de- he's yeah. good at it is the thing like honestly like he he's yep. charismatic and engaging and he knows how to like hold a conversation with a with a what's that one like not subject yeah. but like yeah you know what i mean so now we have mass funerals in 2015 because the velvet underground rancho relaxo wrong bar and cool house all closed yeah um yeah velvet underground to me was the biggest thing because by the time velvet underground closed the narrative wasn't oh my god i'm we're so sad this closed it's like it's done it's over like live music in toronto is over oh yeah well bands were over i think um like with with the end of indie rock it's just like the whole concept of like you know making it as a band putting a band together it it became solo artists it became solo artists breaking through on the internet Mm -hmm. cultivating followings in a more direct way and then yeah. if you're going out to do shows, you're doing like larger venues. Like you, you've cultivated a following. Now you're going to get in front of a thousand people. So a lot of those smaller scale venues, they just didn't, they didn't have a place to fit into that. Yeah. And you don't they, have like a stream right. of like young bands and like young artists that are trying to like get themselves out there in that way. Yeah. It just doesn't, yeah, it, it, it doesn't follow. Yeah. And, and I feel like this is probably as good a time as any to talk about it. Um, you know, I feel like, most people who follow music even a little bit know on some level that Spotify is a music industry killer, um, but it's hard to describe the ways in which it is. As a good example of the economics of Spotify is how a few years ago when Taylor Swift pulled her music off of Spotify in protest about them not paying musicians enough, which like she went back on anyway. So I kind of lost, I had a lot of respect for her with that move, but then I was like, okay, but you went back on it. Um, there was one analyst I think it was on cue, but I really can't remember, honestly. They were saying that essentially, unless you are as big as Taylor Swift or like at the time, say Adele or Justin Bieber, um, that that essentially, unless you are that big and there are a few modern bands who are, you need Spotify more than it needs you. And musicians are stuck in this really bad spot where Spotify doesn't treat them well and Spotify is the only way that they will get heard, but they can't they're not making money off of it and you know the only real way to make money these days unless again you're adele big is um you know live shows and you know we're not doing that anymore and like you said the avenue to big live shows is is now really really fragmented because they're just the venues aren't there Oh yeah, and it it was fragmenting before the pandemic is the thing. It's just yep. it's all yep. of these things were happening before they got exacerbated and just really collapsed in a way. Like we're seeing, we saw the live music industry literally collapse last year, and it's it it's not coming back in North America. It's they're starting to have shows in Australia and New Zealand, from what I heard. But like, yeah, that's one Good. market. <laughs> 
good for Flight of the Concords, I guess. I don't know if they're still a thing. Um, the the so the whole reason uh, Spotify has invested so much in podcasts lately, and you know, calls itself now Spotify Music and Podcasts, is because you know podcasts are a way more popular business model than music. You don't have to pay nearly the same fees for things like licensing and acquisition acquisitions and revenue sharing is a lot more straightforward. So like. Spotify, which got into the music business, has basically said, yeah, music doesn't work for us, which I think is just like super, super sad. <laughs> um, so, yeah, 2016, we got Tragically Hip logs their final tour. Uh, mm-hmm. Tom Power replaces Shad on Q. Uh, Stingray acquires a slew of much music properties, including Much Loud, Much Retro, and Juicebox. Um, and then Gusto, which is now uh, CTV Life, it's like their food and lifestyle network, replaces M3 on the dial. 2017 is uh i think this is where it was kind of the natural conclusion last noted tour for a broken social scene uh probably the <laughs> i cried a lot that night gord downey dies mm-hmm. i also cried a lot that night because my bike was stolen that night but uh That's that awful. was it, like you get home because your bike was stolen and then you found out oh my god gord downey died like if we all knew it was coming oh. but what a sad day yeah oh yeah um and then Holyoke and the Central closed. Um, and then to me, one of the biggest final blows uh, to the Made in Canada music era. And I remember watching this play out before me on social media. Mm. The CRTC drops the requirements for much to fund much fact. And also discon- and then much also discontinued uh, the much countdown. Um, yep. The much fact, like people were devastated. M- much fact was how... Most major musicians in Canada got their music videos made. Yep. It's, uh, it was just, and it wasn't even that the defunding of Much Fact was the cause of anything. It was the sign of like, oh my God, like there's, there's no way to make it anymore. There's no way, like, I mean, that's why like half the working musicians, you know, are also, you know, and not just because of the pandemic, they're working as servers, they're working as cashiers, they're like working data entry jobs because it's like, yeah, my band is a hobby now. It's about making content. Um, you know, I'm seeing a lot of musicians uh, streaming on uh, doing TikTok, doing Instagram Reels, getting promotion there. Um, online collaborations. That that seems to be like the best like working musician avenue these days. Uh, because it's digital media. At the end of the day, it's like it, it's it's launching a brand and creating a Patreon and you know going that avenue that's really um how you structure it on the low level now it's 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 not about playing shows as much no i yeah. mean my favorite my favorite band who's sure i'm wearing hop along like their uh lead singer they're an artist and they i think make just as much money from selling their art um and yeah yeah but on the topic of, collab- of collaborations, I have a few questions written down specifically that I want to ask you because, like, I-, I love your opinions. They always come from such an educated place. Mm. Um, who do you think were some of the best tours and collaborations of that, like, peak awesome era? Um, see, I'm not sure. See, it's tough because, like, during that era, I wasn't super plugged into it. Um, it wasn't until the very end, I think, that I transitioned out of the kind of punk rock, screamo scene into indie and like became more familiar with indie bands in the scene um see i'm not sure i remember there was a (laughs) show that broken social scene played in toronto i think it was at um sound academy it was called sound academy at the time Mm -hmm. um 
and they had Isaac Brock from Modest Mouse come out. Um, that seemed like a pretty good collaboration. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, you know. You know, I'm, I'm probably going to have to Google this eventually, but that's another one I think. Does Sound Academy, or I guess, is it called The Docs now? I forget no, what it's called. No, so it was The Docs in the early 2000s, and then it okay. changed to, I think it changed to Sound Academy, then it changed to The Reverb. Do they, does it still exist? Is that one of the ones that's closed? I, th- I think it still exists. I don't think it closed okay. officially. I saw Gaslight Anthem there um, I think a couple years ago. That is the last like non-Bud stage show I've been to, <laughs> um, which sh- says something about how much I was going to live music when I first moved here and, you know, working 70 hours a week. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm so, um, and do you feel, do you feel now like at least, I mean, our platform that we're able to offer to artists is so much narrower now and so much smaller. But I mean, we do, we still got CBC music and we've got like, I'd say the CBC is probably at the forefront of trying to do the right thing. Um, I I think we learned a harsh truth with Canadian media once the internet took hold. And it's that people don't care that much about Canadian media, not even Canadians. And when given the option, they're going to go usually to American or European media, or even now it's like a lot of Asian media. So, mm-hmm. you know, like Canadian meat, it's, I, I think a lot of these companies are fighting losing battles. They really, they need to think broader, less insular, more, you know, bigger scale, more like mm-hmm. future forward, less like trying to preserve like these things that they've built up over time that are just becoming obsolete dinosaurs yes yeah exactly but it's like you know that's that's so much of the industry right now (laughs) yeah and and even on that same channel it's like a lot of the new stuff that companies are trying now it's like i don't want to see another streaming service of music or video or a combination of the two or otherwise because there's just there's enough of that shit right now i don't give a shit about cbc listen like and you you know anyone who knows me any anyone who's seen me in a tank top knows i love the cbc because i have a cbc logo tattooed (laughs) on my back but um like it's it's a weird they they just decided oh we can't beat them we join them yeah um but uh, so i was gonna ask if you feel like we're at least with what limited platform we have giving a better platform to indigenous artists but i'm really worried because i have a feeling the answer is going to be in the negative oh no i barely hear about indigenous artists yeah. i hear about a few here and there you know tribe called red the ones that have like yeah. achieved a level of success like dj shub mm-hmm. um but, but yeah. I, I was and then buffy, buffy. But yeah. who has been working her ass off since the seventies? And I mean, Buff- Buffy wasn't thing. unknown. Like she was, she was on Sesame Street for crying out loud. Yeah, um, yeah, she was. Oh, she's so beautiful. And I looked at, and I'm like, young Buffy Marie, uh, Buffy Saint Marie was amazingly beautiful. She still mm-hmm. is though. Um, but th- it was. I kind of realized what the answer to this was when you mentioned TikTok because Indigenous TikTok is so big right now, mm-hmm. um, and. Indigenous creators are getting so big on TikTok and teaching people about yeah. uh, like traditional regalia, traditional practices. I think they're the ones amplifying uh, Indigenous artists better than Canadian platforms ever did. Oh, the Canadian platform, like they, they, all they cared about was giving it like enough lip service to like mm-hmm. say they did. Yeah, but they weren't there to highlight that. They weren't there to like kind of show indi- like true Indigenous history and lifestyles and perspectives. Because, like, let's be let's be real. Like, our our country has put great efforts into burying that. Yeah, for it's all centuries. part of con- 
like continued genocide. That's yeah. it. it. It's you know, they they don't want to give it the time of day. So it's like I don't trust our institutional media to highlight no, that no. properly. Mm-hmm. So um, with with that, I come to and uh, I know you wrote down some of your key releases. I did mine. It, it ended up being becoming a top ten. So I just want to mm-hmm. share what some of my top 10 releases from that era were. Yeah. Uh, going in chronological order. So Underdogs from 1997. Uh, Happiness is Not a Fish You Can Catch from 1999 by Our Lady Peace. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's that one is the one with Is Anybody Home? And I love that. That I think that's just such a perfect song for me. Mm. Um, and the, the whole album is great, though. That was before mm-hmm. they got uh, Chantal Kirby-Azicked. Um <laughs> Uh, you Forgot It in People from 2002. I think anyone would be remiss to not include You Forgot It in People mm-hmm. um, by Rogue and Social Scene. You're Excellent a Woman, record. I'm a... Yeah, You're a Woman, I'm a Machine uh, from 2004. Yeah. Uh, Joyful Rebellion, also from 2004 by Chaos. Mm. Um, and I, I'm trying to think, what is the bigger song from that album? Is it Crab Bucket or Man I Used to Be? Crab Bucket. Uh, Crab see, Bucket I, hit I guess... the States. Crab Bucket went okay. like... Across, yeah, because Crab, Crab yeah. Bucket was in a couple commercials, and it, yeah, um, I think Crab, Bu- Crab Bucket was the closest he ever got to really breaking. Yep, I think you're right. But he didn't uh, quite. He didn't yeah. quite get over. Yeah, it's it's a shame. Um, uh, marriage from 2007. That's another one. My uh, I've got my little tattoo of Attack and Black's Marriage. God, that is a band mm. that I just. When you talk about bands, you can go back to that. Is an album that just like puts me it's like a warm bath to me they're they're fun they they i lump them into the kind of the earnest canadian category but um (laughs) yeah they they had a lot of good stuff going on they had a vibe um their second record it's it's so scattered about like it jumps all over the place um and it's like there's so many things it's like you can hear what they're trying to do but they don't quite pull it off they have a fantastic al- uh, live album. They um, got live if you're interested. That's on regular rotation on my record player. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I didn't know that. But yeah, I think um, Attack and Black, my first exposure to them was fall of 2006. I just started a new school and I was going with some like friends I met that day doing a Lexus on Fire show and Attack and Black was the opening band. And we were like, who are these guys? Like, they're so soft for this show because the other opening acts were like cancer bats and every time I die and what a delight they were and i'm just like oh i think i that was my first inkling of i think i like music that doesn't yell <laughs> yeah um yeah so then also 2007 uh big for me and uh, you know put it up again with uh, a slight mix between earnest and still i think a bit cynical but bring me your love by city and color i think is mm. his best work um and that uh included a collaboration with the late great gord downey um just every song on that album to me is is uh hits it out of the park Mm-hmm. Um, God, 2007 was a great year for me because I got two others from that year. The Con, um, you know, young bisexual girl uh, discovering Tegan and Sarah, discovering the likes of Call It Off um, and I Wouldn't Like Me. Mm. Fantastic album. I I don't know if Tegan and Sarah has the same appeal. Does it have the same appeal to, to guys? I never got Pat. I, I only got into their singles. I was, they were one of those like, yeah, yeah. I, 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 if the right single came on i would recognize them um there was the one record i think it was their second record that i did like listen to it front to back a few times back in the mm-hmm. day but i couldn't remember much of it yeah 
So then the last 2007 entry, and um, it's the only artist who I have on here twice, and it's Chaos, Atlantis Hymns for Disco. And I think a lot of people would never regard this as like an all-timer Canadian album, but the reason I really love it is because, again, Chaos, it's a shame he didn't get more recognition for this. He was good. Was an, he was he a, an good. artist who, he, yeah, he remains good. He's still a working musician, but he was an art, is an artist who... Um, works in every genre and i think atlantis was such a great display of he's like this song is a doo-wop song this mm. song is a disco song this song is a ska song like yeah. he it just played and it was it you know much like joyful rebellion there was a sense of joy to it but then you read the lyrics and they're very soulful they're filled with a lot of angst and emotion and it's just like this guy is so subversive and i i think there was a real genius to chaos and um yeah, yeah. Atlantis remains to me a very underappreciated album. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, 2009, Old Crow's Young Cardinals, like I said, an album I've come around to retroactively. We don't need to re-dissect it, but uh, I had to get Alexis on fire there once. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Luke, tell me what's some of your favorite albums from that uh, key era or even your favorite bands, whatever you feel like adding in. Um. I kind of I just like listed off some of like the key bands that I remember and uh, like I I have a couple like the top records that I think both resonated with me then and then stuff that I had gotten into later in life that you know kind of resonated with me moving forward. Um, but I I I wanted to actually like ask um did you get into Mother Mother very much? No, but I am like the only one of my friends who doesn't like Mother Mother. Okay, um, I was I was wondering about that because I, yeah. I knew quite a few people who got very into Mother Mother. I was like, I was always okay with them, but they were also one of those bands that I feel like, you know, they got attention, but they never quite crossed the border fully. I, you know, I feel bad because I can't... It, it, this is, you know, I, I'm, I'm almost 32. I'm not, I'm not old and I'm not young and yeah. I can't... It's the little details I can't remember. Like, I know that there was a period when Mother Mother was opening for a band I liked on their tour. Okay. I cannot remember which band it was. Yeah. And that was a thing where it kind of like the experience of seeing Attack in Black. All my friends in North Bay went to this one show. I, w- I was in school at the time. Uh, and it's like, oh, my God, Mother Mother opened and we we fell in love with them. And I'm just like, who? And I listened to them. I'm like, I guess. You know, that's. Yeah. They me, had that kind of quirky yeah. approach. Yep. Mother Mother to me is kind of like the new pornographers. I will never be upset if I'm listening to them, but there's also nothing that distinguishes distinguishes them to me. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like they a lot of their songs all sound different. And I know I just like say gave chaos kudos for that, but I'm just like this band to me doesn't have much of an identity. I wouldn't be able to describe Mother Mother's sound to you. Well, um, it's it's yeah. you can be all over the place, but you should still distinguish yourself in a certain yes. way. And I feel like, yeah, they just they didn't distinguish themselves. I think a similar thing, like I, I feel the same about them as Walk Off the Earth. Did you listen to Walk Off the Earth before they became like basically internet people? Uh, no. No, I got into See, them with the Gautier cover. I I did Gautier. a little bit. Uh, starting in 2010, um, I was dating a fella who uh, was really into, uh, was really into them and a few other, like, indie ska stuff, and they really played the, the campus circuit, much like the Arkells. Yes. Um, and I got to see them live once, because they're Burlington guys, like, they're not, um, mm-hmm. and... Yeah, I was then, and I, th- I think there was a few ska bands from like the London area that we would kind of chase around. The last, the last show I saw from Walk Off the Earth was when they had not gone Gautier viral, but they had started to do the covers thing, and um, yeah. 
They had done their two big ones that they did were Magic and Love the Way You Lie. And they performed both of those. But at the time, they were still just a duo. It was still uh, Johnny Nicasio and Ryan Marshall just doing their thing. And right. they are a fun show. Um, yeah. But I mean, they, they almost like it's kind of like there's a joke on The Simpsons about the Beatles. It's like, oh, yeah, they make the music on Maggie's Baby Records. And I'm like, that's kind of what Walk Off the Earth is now. Well, they became a cover band, you know, they got famous for their covers and they tried to write a few songs and like, but they never got that hit. They never distinguished yep. like their own sound in a way, you know. And and like you said, it's very much like content creation now. Yeah. Um, well, it's like, uh, what's their name? Um, they do like the um, Rube Goldberg style videos. OK, go. OK, okay go. go. Yeah, exactly. It's like <laughs> their their music is it's such Secondary. wallpaper. Yeah. It's yeah. such wallpaper music, but it, it's they, they've had such a successful career just because they managed to keep coming up with these like visual gimmicks that just work so well. I tried several years ago to do um, a competitive acro line to the song um, This Too Shall Pass by OK Go, which is yes. the one that they did the actual Rube Goldberg uh, video right. to. And I realized when I started trying to choreograph, this song is so boring. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> Most of their songs are. It was like their first two tracks were like kind of catchy and like good songs. But then everything else, like it just became like the blandest. It, it just the music became secondary and it became very mm -hmm. clear. Um, it's and hey, and like, I guess you Walk Off the Earth. Too. Yeah, I got, I got similar vibes from Walk Off the Earth. Yeah. It's also a shame because at least you could say like Walk Off the Earth, you know, capital W was a band before. But one of the things that gets uh, very commonly um, overlooked is. Creep Show, which is the punk band that uh, Sarah Blackwood, the female lead singer of Walk Off the Earth, it was her band prior to that. And that was a really good band. There's, I like, love Creep I mean, Show. I've seen them. Yeah. I've mixed them once at Nathan Phillips Square. I saw them in Montreal at a punk festival. Yeah. And they're they're just a good time. I mean, female-fronted punk already is not, or femme-fronted punk, I should say, is yeah. not has never been particularly big or well supported, but especially in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I was had a huge crush on Sarah Blackwood back in the day. And I remember like, again, around 2010, when I was dating a guy who was really into old walk off the earth. And it was like, did you know that like one of the guys is dating the girl from Creepshow? Like, ah, oh. um, so nice. yeah. Um, and I noticed you had uh, Japan Droids on here and I can't think of a band that I would describe more as campus rock. I love Japan Droids, but like, well, I was trying rock. to think of West yeah. Coast, you know, that's where Mother Mother yeah. and Japan Droids is like, what, what was coming out of Vancouver at the time? Because I don't think and Dan Mangan and Dan Mangan. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think anything really took foothold. It was like, it was Toronto and Montreal that really had the, the heavy hitters. Besides, besides Arcade Fire and Wolf Parade, what were the other big Montreal acts at the time? Um, Godspeed is Montreal. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I guess like, uh, Winnipeg, you know, good for you. You have the weaker thens. Good, good job, Winnipeg. <laughs> or Propagandi, uh, which, yes! you know, led into the, Shit. we, their Propagandi's dope. They're so good. Yeah. <laughs> those, they're, so, they're, those are some of the best punk records ever. Yes, I agree. That, and that was something that, that. When I look back at the stuff I listened to in high school, I think propaganda was one of the few things I'm like, okay, you know what? I was kind of cool. <laughs> oh, they're heavy All and right. they're real. Like their their politics yeah. are on point. Um, but Absolutely. you know, it, it's a funny thing because I I I do really feel that the indie scene, like coming out of the 2010s, mm -hmm. had it not happened the way it did, and like kind of became like made Canada like as I say palatable 
in a certain way that because it, it's like it dropped like the earnest pretense and it made Canada like okay this is cool there's cool bands coming out of Toronto it's like Toronto's worth paying attention to then you had Drake explode but I really think like that indie scene opened the door for a lot of the new wave that we're seeing right now you know I think like the weekend in particular really rode that indie rock mysterious like indie cool um oh yeah yeah, like all of his early marketing, just like not revealing his face, kind of his music being like trippy, um, having like a lot of elements of experimental indie rock in his R&B that I think had the earlier scene not like opened the door the way it did. I don't know if The Weeknd would have exploded in the way that he has. Yeah, I think you're right. Um I think the weekend took off right around when I was about to graduate because I remember in my last year of high school or last year of high school, last year, uh, Laurier, uh, mm-hmm. there was a student vote to see who we would get to play. I think it was our, our a week final show. And yeah. it was the Arkells versus the weekend. And at the time I had never heard of the weekend. Yeah. And everyone, even though uh, Arkells won, people yeah. were really pissed that Arkells won. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And, and in fairness, I love the Arkells. But they they play every campus every year, or they did at the time. Yeah, um, that would have been a cool thing. That would have been like, yeah. hey, I saw the weekend very early. Yeah, but I noticed in the post era, you also uh, another band that I was really excited for you to talk about is Bad Bad Not Good. Oh, Bad Bad, yeah, exactly. Uh, and and another band again, I think they really rode that wave. They came because they started at the end of the era, um, but they managed to also cross over with hip-hop and got taken very seriously within the hip-hop scene like they got that odd future co-sign very early and that just like put them in a rank and then they did the album with Ghostface Killer and now they are just like but it's funny because those boys are so Canadian yeah they're just these earnest nerdy humber jazz kids that just like love all these different kinds of music and like like to do crossover jazz covers but then, like, they've just been so openly embraced by the hip-hop community. I think one thing I love about Bad Bad is, you know, what we were talking about with, early on with the music that kind of um, has, it's more insular, it's more created for you, It's mm-hmm. it has very little interest in commercial success, it has very little interest in finding an analog elsewhere. Yeah. And one thing that is really, really associated with rock Um I do not find it is commonly associated with hip hop, which I think comes down to a little bit of, um, you know, musical racism. Musical racism is a thing. And people thinking like, oh, rock is experimental and hip hop is generic. Um, and, and yet stuff like that, like there's a lot of a lot of hip hop roots are in jazz, are mm. in doo uh, and And also people forget that rock and roll is a, a black pioneer genre. Um, mm-hmm. But But something like Bad Bad, I feel like, is awesome because it actually subverts that narrative that only, um, you know, only rock musicians um, can do the experimental thing. Um, Because it's like, have you not been paying attention to music history? Like, rock musicians did not create experimentation in music at all. No, hip hop. Like, in the 2010s, hip hop was the most experimental music coming out, I think. Like, it really, it completely took over my listening sphere. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like, I mean, and I, I think, I think even though you and I have different opinions on when that Canadian indie rock genre peaked, I think we are kind of of the same mind that like there was a solid, I'd say six years when it was, everything was 
very saturated and wonderful. But then after it went away, like the transition was very stark and I think a little a little sad, but the sad stuff was sad for the music industry in general, not just a genre. Well, it, it wasn't contained to Canada. It wasn't yeah. just like something that happened with Canadian indie rock is that indie rock as a whole kind of like fell off the radar, fell out of influence, fell out of graces because a lot of that, the the experimental spirit of indie rock found its way into hip hop. And I think there's a lot of actually, I think what happened was indie rock and hip hop began to cross over and you started to get acts breaking out on the internet like Odd Future, um, like ASAP Rocky, and then they became the mainstream. And like I said uh, earlier in the podcast of just like that transition of just like having a separation between internet culture and mainstream culture. And then they just like completely merged into one. Like that was when that happened, but it was like those early internet artists are kind of what brought it over the hump, but they were also coming from that experimental DIY indie rock perspective. But then once they brought it into hip hop, that was becoming the biggest genre in the world. And then using the internet as well to like become sit at the cutting edge of culture. Yeah. It just, it took over. Um, but I, I do think like the first informed the latter. The former yeah. informed the latter, for sure. Yes. You know? um, and so, like opened the door for other, you know, like uh, Catronata is another one I can think of. Yes. Yeah. So if you could introduce, as, as we veer toward our conclusion, if you could introduce one person to kind of Canadian indie, mm -hmm. what album or artist would you start them on? Um, I'd go one of two ways. I'd, I'd either do Lift Your Skinny Fingers or uh, The Suburbs. Suburbs is a great one. I was going to say uh, Live It Out or one of Metric's middle albums. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, or You're yeah, a Woman. You're a Woman, I'm a Machine. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, that's a safe one. I think I, I, I'd say you have to be a real weirdo to not like that one. <laughs> it's such a tight record. It's oh, like yeah. there's no filler. It's just, yeah. it's one, it keeps the energy alive cover to cover. It's yeah. It's an experience. <laughs> it's yeah. an experience. Yeah. It's like if there's any record that I'm going to recommend, yeah, I'd say like put that on because it's a quick listen. It's a good listen. And it just, it, it has energy. Mm -hmm. So, Luke, I know you're not a big social media guy and stuff, but um, is there anything that you wanted to plug? Anything, any ways our listeners can support you or any causes that you want to kind of plug as we say goodbye? Um, You know, I'm on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you are. Yeah. I, it's at, Luke VA, Luke Hevier. I just combined my first and last name, so I, it's weird to pronounce, but yes. uh, you, you'll type it out, I'm sure, in a place. Um, I sure will. So you can find me on Instagram. Um, mm -hmm. uh, things to support. Uh, I like to support the Community Fridge Network in Toronto, uh, CFTO. Yes, um, thank you. CF underscore underscore TO. Um, and mm -hmm. I believe there's like they have offshoots in Vancouver and Montreal as well. Um, and Hamilton. And Hamilton. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Sorry. No, I was also going to say, I mean, it's great that we're talking about mutual aid and a lot of, um, you know, I. that's the one thing. Artists make shit money. And yet uh, they are some of the most committed people I've seen to mutual aid. Mm. Uh, and so one other thing I wanted to plug that's uh, new is uh, my favorite tattoo shop in Hamilton, Sleepy Bones Tattoo. They have started a... Um, a period pantry in front of their shop, which is on Main. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Is it Main? No, it's it's King. Sorry, I mix up Main and King a lot. Yeah. Uh, and it's like um, hygiene products instead of food. 
yeah, hy- yeah. Uh, hygiene products. Uh, inc- I don't think menstrual cups are in there because I don't know about the... Uh, I mean, menstrual cups are, are great, but they're not the most uh, friendly for houses people. But uh, mm. things like just pads, tampons, underwear, uh, and uh, they're they're getting used, which is awesome. So yeah, Community Mutual Aid, thank you so much for bringing that up. Uh, as for me, I've been your host, Brie Rohde. You can find me on Twitter at Breganism, which is veganism, but with a B-R-E-E. Our theme music is Homo Logo by Jack Dump, and you can find them on bandcamp.com slash Jack Dump. Support an indie artist today. Our show logo is made by Jared Daly, just a little guy that I married. New episodes are due out every two weeks, and you do not want to miss them. You can check out our back catalog, which contains uh, episodes on Malcolm in the Middle, King of the Hills, So You Think You Can Dance, uh, Saw, and more. we got episodes coming up on Scream. we got episodes coming up on Parks and Recreation. We've got a whole month of Simpsons episodes. Stay tuned, and remember, if you're past your peak, rolling downhill is extremely fun. Yeah.